Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, we're resuming our series in the book of Philippians, so we're in Philippians chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 1 through 11 this Sunday, Philippians 2, 1 through 11, written by the Apostle Paul, who used to hate Jesus, and everyone who followed Jesus, he would um, try to kill or arrest any Jewish person who was saying that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. And that he was God. He hated that idea. And um, and then he ends up a few years later penning a, a passage like this, which is a complete turnaround. He became a Christian. So here's Philippians 2, 1 through 11. It's on, if, you, if you have a pew Bible, it's on page 1040. If there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete... By thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider one another as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited, Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father, we praise you that everything in the end will glorify you. We praise you that every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Master, God. We know, Lord, that the world doesn't recognize that today in large measure. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us The eyes of faith, eyes that think and understand and believe what you show us. So open our eyes to see wonderful things here in your word. Apart from your Holy Spirit, apart from your omnipotent power, your almighty power, we can learn some interesting things, we can learn some true things, but we won't believe it. Not in a way that transforms our souls. Not in a way way that transforms us as a church. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us here to receive your word with humility, with trembling, and with a heart ready and excited and enthusiastic to obey. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do you remember, if you're a Christian, do you remember the sweetness of church? Do you remember the first time you tasted the sweetness of church? It might be different for you. If you were not a Christian and then you got became a Christian as an older person, you might have walked in and said, like, this is something different than anything I've ever ever experienced. For me, it wasn't that way. For me, I grew up in a church while my parents got saved when I was eight years old. But it became sweet to me around, I don't know, 14 years old or 15 years old. I started to to realize what was going on. 
And it became really sweet. Before, services were really long. So some of you kids might feel that way. Like, I felt like services were like 10 hours, even though it was like one hour. It felt like forever. And the pastor would just go on and on. And when is he going to be done? And then it just became sweet. I started understanding what he was saying. And and I started understanding the, the, the importance of the family, the church family and the body. And it started to taste sweet. Do you remember that? Your first taste of the sweetness of church? Not regular, but your first taste of it? What happened? What happened to the sweetness that you tasted of church? Now, we as humans, we love other people, even non-Christians. We love other people. And we love, with, we love working with other people to make life better. Life feels better. I'm getting a little bit of feedback. Are you guys hearing that? Yeah, it's... Um, you want me to just put this up to my face, John? Or just keep, keep working with it, brother. Okay. Um, so we, we all enjoy making life better for others, even if you're not a Christian. You don't have to be a Christian to want that. You just feel the joy of, of helping other people feel better. So one of the reasons we've joined a church as Christians is to follow Jesus and help other people follow Jesus. The problem is... We, even though we need others and even though we want to help others, we often find so many discouragements in trying to share life and share Jesus with other church members directly and then us going out together to the lost to share life and share Jesus with a lost and dying world. There's discouragements. There's frustrations. We offend each other. We sin against each other. I mean, who hasn't been offended, hurt, sinned against or frustrated by someone else in the church? The only way you really get to that point of not ever being hurt is by not committing or not going in, right? If you're going to love people and stay there and try to get to know people and let them get to know you, you're going to get hurt because they're sinners and we're sinners. So the only option is disengage and just kind of come on Sunday and leave before anyone could talk to you or get to know other sinners who will sometimes sin against you as you will sometimes sin against them. So that when you first come, it's almost like dating for the first time. You know, you, you're overwhelmed with joy and then you, reality sets in that it is sweet, but it's not the same kind of sweetness you thought it was initially. How do we, how do we get back to that? How do we fix that? Well, Paul is a good guide here. And this text, he gives us a, a good, or not just good advice, but God's word on how to live together as a Christian family. So here's the main idea. If you're taking notes, here's the main idea. We need, you need a unity mindset to gospelize as a Christian and as a church family. What we need in this church, if we're going to gospelize the world, that's what Paul's about in Philippians 1. We're going to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. If we're going to do that, we need a unity mindset amongst each other. What does it mean to have a unity mindset? How do we think in a way where we're united as a church? Have you ever heard of churches dividing? Churches splitting up, division in church. How do you keep unity in a church? Well, there's two points to this passage, and there's two parts, okay? Part one, think in unity. Part two, think like Jesus, okay? Think in unity, think like Jesus. If we're going to have a unity mindset that's going to help us as a church go out together to gospelize a lost and dying world, we need a unity mindset. And there's two ways, there's two things to this. It's think in unity and think like Jesus. Think in unity is verses 1 through 4, and think like Jesus is verses 5 through 11, okay? So number one, think in unity. 
Look at verse 1. If there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, here's the command, make my joy complete, Paul says, by what? What does he want you to do? Think the same way. This is what I'm calling thinking. Think in unity. Thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, so one spirit, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. There's the key to unity. There's the command to unity. Think the same way, have the same love, unite in spirit, intend on one purpose. I summarize all of that by saying, think in unity. What does it mean to think the same way? That means to have the same mindset, to have the same outlook. So we have the Bible as the authority, informing our minds that we might think biblically. When you think biblically, there's three, there's three things to thinking the same way. There's the Bible itself. There's our personal understanding and experience and application of it in our own lives. And then there's the way we apply it to the world. So we don't just need to think about what the text says the same way. We need to think of how it applies to our own lives individually, to each other's lives, and then to the world in the same way. We need to have the same biblical mindset. Not only think the same way, but the second part here in verse 2 is have the same love. Have the, what, what do you love? What does the church love? What does Bethany Baptist Church love? What do our members love? And what do they love more than anything else? Is it the same thing? Do they have the same love, the same passion, the same drive? Is the object of their affection the same object? Or do we love different persons, different things? Now, we all want to say Jesus, right? But do we all love Jesus primarily, preeminently, supremely? Or is Jesus number two or number four in our list of loving priorities? Well, you're going to, you're not going to think, you're not going to have the same love. It's not just the same person, but the same degree, the same priority. Number one, preeminent. What's the greatest commandment? Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That's Mark 1230. And the second command is love your neighbor as yourself. If we're going to have the same love as a church, we need to love God infinitely more. I don't use that word lightly. We need to love God infinitely more than we love our families. Then we love our health. Then we love our friends. Then we love our job. Then we love our church. Then we love our ambition. We need to love God with all that we are. And you don't do that by minimizing or decreasing your love for others. Well, if I can infinitely love God, then that means I got to love my wife less to, to increase that separation. That's not, that's not how it goes. You should love God as with all that you are. And everyone else is a far second and third and fourth and fifth. So keep loving each other because the second command is love your neighbor as yourself. So you love yourself. You love your neighbor. You are to love one another in the church. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. So love each other, yes, but love God infinitely more. And if you don't do it that way, if you love the church more than you love Jesus, you'll, you'll divide the church. If you love, if I love my children more than I love Jesus, I'll divide my marriage. Or my parenting. When, when, when Christ is not the supreme object of our love, we will divide from other Christians. We have to. 
because there are some Christians who are going to get it right, and they're not going to they're not going to waver on Christ being the supreme love. And so, if you're going to waver on that and go the other way, there's going to be division because we're not moving. The ones who are going to love Christ, they're not going to move. They shouldn't move. We should keep moving back to loving Christ. So, same love. Next thing here. So, um, having the same love, united in spirit. So, sharing the same feelings. It's not the Holy Spirit, though. It does. I mean, the Holy Spirit empowers our spirit but having the same the same feelings the same spirit you know we talk about team spirit right you have you, you guys you're familiar with that with little kids on a sports team there's kids with poor team spirit where they're kind of groping at the end like complaining at the end of the bench and just you know moping and and not really everyone else is cheering and they're focused on the game or they're focused on winning or they're focused on encouraging each other even when they're losing and then there's the there's the players on the team who are just complaining at the end of the bench not not being in the huddles not encouraging the team, not united in spirit, has a different spirit, not the team spirit. They have a different spirit. Well, the call here is to have team spirit, and the team here from Philippians 127 is we live as worthy citizens of, the, of heaven, live out the gospel as worthy citizens of heaven. So we're on team heaven, citizens of heaven. Or to use Peter's words, quoting Moses' words, a holy nation. That's our team. Jesus' team. So do we have team spirit? Are we united in spirit? Guided and shaped by a singular passion. That's the next one. Well, the goal. So do we have team spirit? And then the last one here is intent on one's purpose. What is our purpose? What is our mission? What are we doing here as a church? What's our goal? Now, the purpose is given very clearly in the Bible. Matthew 28, 19 and 20 is one way of saying it. Go therefore and make what? Disciples of all nations or all ethnic people groups. That's a better translation, probably more uh, nations is fine, but not nation states. All ethnicities, all ethnic people groups. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey everything I command you. That's, that's the one purpose, the one goal. And all to whose glory? To God's glory, right? Whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, do all to the glory of God. The great purpose of this church is to glorify God by discipling the neighbors and the nations. That's what we do. We disciple each other. We disciple our neighbors. We disciple the nations to glorify God. Is that the one goal of our church? If that's not, we're not going to think the same. We're not going to think in unity. We're going to divide from one another. Paul says this in other texts. First Corinthians 1.10 says, Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say. Agree. That there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. First Corinthians 1.10. That's when people are saying, I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Peter. I'm of Jesus. No. Be united. For 2 Corinthians 13.11, Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Become mature, be encouraged, be of the same mind, be at peace. Be of the same mind. Do you hear that? Be of the same mind and the God of love and peace will be with you. So why do we need to have unity? That's the command, okay? Why do we need to think in unity now? If we're going to think in unity, what are some reasons? This text gives us three reasons why we should think in unity. Reason number one, look at verse two. My, I'm sorry, verse one. Now in the CSB, what's the second word there? If what? If then. In another text, it might be if therefore, right? If there. So if then, 
If my, my, my text says, if then there is any encouragement. But the then there is important. It's if therefore, based on what I said earlier, then think in unity. So what did he say earlier? The main command of Philippians, you guys have to know the main command of Philippians as we're studying the book, right? Philippians 127, just go back a page. Philippians 127 says this. Here's the one thing Paul wants out of the, the church in this letter. Just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. So he wants you as a citizen to live worthy of the gospel. That is not an individual thing. As an American citizen or whatever nation you're a citizen of, it's not just about you. If you're going to be a good citizen of your nation, you have to think about the greater good of the nation, right? So if you're going to be a citizen of heaven, living worthy of the gospel, that doesn't mean just have a good Christian life by yourself. What does it mean? Look at verse 28. Or I'm sorry, the end of verse 27. Then whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. I like the ESV translation here. Contending side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's the one thing. If, so, so if therefore, if that's the mission, you need to think in unity. So that's reason number one. Why should we think in unity? Because the command of the book is that we contend side by side as citizens of heaven for the gospel. And God has given us faith. God has given us opposition and suffering for the faith of the gospel. And therefore, because we have this great mission and this great citizenship, we must think in unity. That's the first reason. The second reason is in verse 1 of Philippians 2. Philippians 2 verse 1. The second reason why we should think in unity is it says, if then there's any encouragement in Christ, and is there encouragement in Christ in this church? Is there encouragement in Christ? Yes or no? Yes. Is there any consolation of love? Yes. Have you ever been comforted by someone? By their love? Yes. If there's any fellowship with the Spirit, have you ever shared of the Holy Spirit with other people in this church? You're saying, what does it mean to share of the Holy Spirit? Well, what are we doing right now? We are hearing God's Word preached. And if it's being preached faithfully, then the Spirit is using this, and we're all sharing of the Spirit right now. If we're singing a song in Christ alone, we're going to sing later, Before the throne of God, I have a strong and perfect plea. The great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. I have God before me so, so I could come to the throne of God. As we're singing that together, we are sharing in the Holy Spirit. He is moving amongst us, proclaiming Christ to us. And as you experience that, together we are sharing in the Holy Spirit. So is there sharing of the Holy Spirit in the church? Yes or no? Yes. Okay. And if there's any affection and mercy, anyone show compassion to another person in this church? Anyone have affection? Anyone care about another person in this church? Yes. So if you have these things, if you have encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, sharing in the Holy Spirit, affection and mercy, if you have those things, then what should you do? Think in unity. It makes no sense to have all of these things from God, God's grace, poured out on this church, and then we think in division. We think divisively. We think selfishly. That makes no sense. If God is working here, if the Spirit is moving here, then we must think in unity. That's the second reason why. Because we've experienced God's grace in this church. The third reason why we need to think in unity is in verse 2. The first part of verse 2. It's actually the main command, which is a funny main command, sort of, in, in this text. So the main command is not think in unity, at least not grammatically, though I think it is the main command. It's make my joy what? Complete. Who's talking here? Who, who wrote Philippians? Paul. Paul wrote Philippians and Jesus through Paul, yes. And so Barbara's getting to the, the right theological answer there. She's actually right here. But Paul's writing this and what's his command? Make me what? 
Make me happy. <laughs> that sounds kind of selfish, right? Hey, you know what my command is to you guys? Make me happy. Who are you? Why, why are we living for your happiness? Well, Barbara said, but Jesus, well, you know, this is ultimately from Jesus. Why? Because what's making Paul happy? What makes Jesus happy? What makes God happy? Paul is happy when you enjoy God. He's happy in your happiness in God as a church. And God is happy when we are happy in God as a church. So the command is, please God. Give God the joy of you enjoying God together as a church. That's the command. And the way you do that is by thinking in unity. By thinking in unity. How kind of God to locate his happiness in our happiness. God doesn't have to care for us in that way. That's what love is. God loves us so much that he cares about your happiness and your joy. I'm using those synonymously because they biblically are synonymous. God cares about your happiness and joy in him. He ties his happiness to your happiness in him. And so therefore, if God does that and it pleases God for us to think in unity, why would we not think in unity? Why would we intentionally go on thinking in division? So how do we do it? Okay, if that's the command, okay, think in unity. I know why I need to think in unity now. How do we do it? Look at verses 3 and 4. Verses 3 and 4 tell us how. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider one another as more important than yourself. So you have two contrasts here. Don't think selfishly, don't have selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. And then verse 4, everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So on one side, the things not to do is, verse 3, how should, how should we think in unity? By not being selfish. By not having a selfish ambition. By not being conceited. And then from verse 4, by not looking out only for our own interests, self-interest, right? Not our own, not only our own interests, our self-interests. But how should we think in unity? So if we're not doing those bad things, what are the things we should be doing? Well, in verse 3, we should consider other people what? More important than ourselves. We should think in humility. And then we should think not only of our own interests, but also the interests of others. Think about what, what, what they care about. What are they interested in? Are you willing to listen to them and hear out their interests? Are you willing to get to know them in that way? So don't be selfish. So if I had to summarize these two con- the, the contrasts, I'd say, how do we do this? By not being self-centered, but by being others-oriented. I don't say others-centered, because we need to be God-centered, but we need to be others-oriented. Okay? Don't be self-centered, but others-oriented. That's how you think in unity. So when it says selfish ambition, conceit, looking out for your own interests, that means you're only thinking about yourself. If there's a competing priority with other people's interests, with God's glory, you're going to prioritize yourself over it rather than push through and find out how it all fits together. You're going to violate other people's joy in God for your own selfish joys. That's what it means to think selfishly and self-centeredly. You know, uh, we were at the Los Angeles Southern Baptist Association meeting this past Tuesday. And Jim was there, our brother Jim, among uh, others. Chris was there. John Lee was there. Francis was there. Um, And we had a vote that was 17 to 21 against 
voting in our new director of missions. So he was not approved. But Jim pointed something out that was very interesting and insightful. He said, this is Jim's second meeting. <laughs> His first meeting was at my first week here as pastor, um, where it was shouting. Uh, people were calling each other racist. People were, um, people were, you know, just demeaning each other's character. It was literally a shouting match of, what, 20 pastors? Or 25 pastors. And that was Jim and, and Al, Jim and Al's first LASBA meeting. I brought them. I was like, you guys need to get involved in what's going on here. So I brought them in and they're just like, what is going on here? That was not thinking in unity. There was a lot of strife, selfish ambition and conceit in that meeting. This meeting last Tuesday was equally, uh, 17 to 21 is that's a split almost down the middle, right? There were strong opinions on both sides. But you know what we noticed? There was not one raised voice. There was not one person getting angry. We all shared why we agree and disagree. I think no. I think yes. I think no. I think yes. I think no because of this. I think yes because of this. We went back and forth for 30 minutes. We voted and we hugged each other after. And Jim was just like, what? This is different. That's a way of thinking in unity even when you don't. So thinking in unity doesn't mean 41 to 0 in the vote. Thinking unity is thinking that Christ is more important than us. And that we love each other. And that we might disagree with each other. But we could do it without getting angry. And self-centered and conceited about it. So 2017 LASBA versus 2014 LASBA. God's grace. A world of difference. We need to think in unity. Not conceited with selfish ambition. But instead we need to be others oriented. What does it mean to be others oriented practically? Well one. I have two examples here. One, One example of it is in church music. Contemporary versus traditional. Is the common debate. You guys know I was on vacation, um, not last week, but the week before, and the week before. So we were out for two weeks. I won't name the church just to protect the guilty, and this is being recorded. And they're not actually guilty, but one church played some straight-up bluegrass praise and worship singing, and I was just not feeling it. We stood up, and we're singing about the resurrection, and they're going down. I, I, I mean, they're just going in on the song, and I was just like, uh, it's really hard to be happy in the resurrection right now with the singing. And I was totally self-centered and conceited and arrogant and judging their style of music for the first verse and a half. And then God rebuked me and was like, what are you doing? Like, we're celebrating the resurrection, that Christ rose out of the grave. And they're loving, and I'm looking around, they're loving Jesus right now. And then we're saying about the resurrection. And I was like, why am I not celebrating the resurrection right now with these brothers and sisters? So I started singing my heart out. To the bluegrass style of music. And I didn't care about this. I mean, but, you know, my wife and I laugh about it after, but we had a good time. And we loved the Lord more for his resurrection, singing with that church family. But I was conceited in the beginning. And that's how we could be, right? I mean, we could debate about the style of music. When we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and brothers and sisters who've been saved from all eternity, singing their hearts out, and here I am disapproving of their style? Wow, how arrogant. That's not thinking in unity. So let's outdo one another in showing honor. You know what kind of worship, you know, have you heard about the worship wars in church where they fight about style? You know what kind of wars we should be having? I can't remember, some pastor said this somewhere. We should be fighting, according to Romans 12, where we outdo one another in showing honor. So I should be like, no, let's sing bluegrass. And like, no, no, let's sing your style. No, no, and we're, we're not fighting for our own preference. We're actually fighting for the preference of the others. What if that was the case in this church? Well, we're not fighting for our own preference, but we're fighting for the preferences of others. 
Because we want to love all of us. And we want us all to worship Jesus together. Children. Let me say a word to children just before we move on. Okay. It says here, not in conceit, or another way of translating it is not in strife. Children, children, children. Okay, listen up. You guys, kids, you need to focus on your attitudes at home. Because your parents have the authority to make you do what you need to do, even when you don't want to do it. And there's a danger there. The danger for you is that you can learn how to listen without having the right attitude towards God. And you could actually be self-centered and have strife and selfish ambition and conceit when you're listening. So children, when you're listening to your parents, don't think just about your parents. Think about God. Think about God looking at your heart and ask God for help. God will help you. God loves you. Ask him for help. And we all need that, don't we? And when you get up, when you grow up, you'll be you'll be good grown-ups because grown-ups need that too. Right, grown-ups? <laughs> we need that as well. Okay. So so we need this mindset, this how we do it, um, by not being selfish, but by being self-centered, but by, by being others-oriented. We need to do it by centering our thinking on the Bible itself. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says that we need to take every thought captive to obey Christ. So here's some application before we move to our second point. For the Christian, meditate on the Bible. If you're going to have the same thinking, you need to meditate on the Bible. And yet, if you're going to have the same love, you need to aim at more than just meditating on the Bible. You need to meditate on the Bible until it warms your heart. Until you're convicted of sin. Aim for more than knowing the Bible. Focus on God himself. Jesus is talking to us and showing us himself. And if you're going to be intent on the same purpose, then you need to be intentional about making disciples of others. That's on the individual level for the Christian. But as a church, what does this mean for us as a church? He's writing to a church. What does this mean for Bethany Baptist Church or your church if you're visiting from another church? What does this mean for you? This means that we need to meditate on the preaching together. We need to unite around our statement of faith as a church. And we we need to unite around the gospel that we preach. I love that fact that we start reading the Bible together. You know, uh, we read Isaiah 40, verses 28 to 31 here this morning together. Pulling out the Bible and hearing everyone's voices reading it together. Because we want God's word to shape us, not just individually, but together. As a church. We need to, as a church, we need to love Jesus in loving others in the church who are different than us. That's easy. That's easy to say. Loving others who are different than us. Let me give you a harder one. We need to love others in our church who disagree with us on important things. Things that you find really important for your life and others disagree with you in this church, we need to focus on loving them in our hearts, in our prayers, and in action as much as they'll let us. So let us go forward and make disciples together. We have three examples of this. I'm just going to mention them to you. Don't turn there, even though it's in Philippians. Timothy was an example of thinking in unity, Philippians 2.20. For I have no one else, Paul says, who's like-minded, who will genuinely care about your interests. That's thinking in unity. He genuinely cares about your interests. He's like-minded. Philippians 3.15 and 16, he tells the church, um, let us all who are mature, so mature Christians, listen to mature Christians, think this way. If any of you have a, are, think differently about anything, God will reveal this to you also. In any case, we should live up to the truth, whatever we have attained. Mature Christians think the same. The less mature Christians don't think the same. That almost sounds like you could use that as a way of making everyone a robot. 
That's why you need to keep going back to the Bible and repentance. And then, not only does it... Here's one more illustration. You know why Paul wrote this letter? One of the main reasons he wrote this letter? Because two prominent members in the church were what? They were fighting. Philippians 4.2, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. You have two women in the church who are fighting with each other. Prominent women in the church fighting. That is not thinking in unity. That is thinking with selfish ambition and conceit and looking out for only their interests. And so we need to do otherwise. Now, can we do it? You guys got this? You got enough strength in you? You guys ready to do this together as a church? We can try. We might do a little bit. But we know, if we've tried anything that the Bible tells us to do, that we're going to quickly fall on our faces. Right? We haven't done it as we ought to do it, and we fail to do it regularly. We're going to try, but we're going to fail. The good news is there's someone who did do it. And that's what the next part of the section is, right? Jesus did it. What did Jesus do? Let me summarize it. Don't even look at the passage yet. Just let me tell you what Jesus did. God's Son, who is himself fully God, here's what he did. God released... This exalt, he released himself from this exalted state of, of being in heaven as God the Son. Now, he's still God the Son, but he didn't cling to that. Instead, he chooses to become a man while still staying God because he was thinking about his people. Or to use Ephesians 5 language, he was thinking about his bride. He was thinking about his people. And so he said, I'm going to leave Heaven, I'm going to become a man and take on all the weaknesses of broken humanity. Not pre-fall humanity, Adam that time, but broken humanity. Where you could get sick, you could be killed, you can get hungry. So he comes to earth, he's arrested, he's tried, he's mocked, he's tortured, he's shamed and ultimately executed and murdered in broad daylight. Worst of all, he dies on the cross under God's wrath for our sins. And this was all part of God's plan, and it was Jesus' choosing. He chose to do this, not looking out for his own interests only, but also the interests of others. Not being self-centered, but being others-oriented. Jesus did it. And this ultimate example of not being selfish is the key, the power, it's the key that unlocks the power for us to do the same. So Christian, let us know that we could never do it on our own, but because Jesus did it, we now can consistently and constantly grow in this, thinking in unity. Let's praise God that Jesus did it. Praise God that he came. Now, if you're not a Christian, you need to understand the main message of Christianity, and that's this. Why did Jesus have to die? Jesus had to die because God made you and I, he made all of us, And he made us in his image to enjoy him forever. God is creator. God created us to enjoy him and to relate to him. Our problem is that we rebelled against God. We rejected God and we wanted to be self-centered. We wanted actually, we wanted God in our lives. but We want just enough of God in our lives to serve us being central. So we want God to be PJ centered or you centered. And yeah, I'll take a little bit of God. I'll worship God as long as he keeps me centered. As long as he keeps me central. And so God is not only our creator, he's also our judge. And the judgment for sin, for rebellion, is death. Eternal death in hell, in the lake of fire, forever and ever. That's that's the judgment. So God is our judge. But the good news is that God's not only our judge. God is also our savior. God is our savior. 
Jesus came. That's what we just talked about here. If you're not a Christian, you need to get this, that Jesus came to die for sinners. To die for sinners like you and me. He died for sins. He died for your sins in this way. He died for your sins such that if you repent from your sins and trust in Jesus, you will not only know Jesus or God as Savior, you'll know God as Savior, and you'll, you'll also know God as Lord. Jesus as Lord of your life. God, Jesus will save you. He'll forgive you of all your sins. He'll free you from the power of sin. He'll give you his Holy Spirit and write his word on your heart that you will now have the power to imperfectly, yet increasingly, grow in loving and following Jesus as you repent all the way along with a church family, walking together. So here's the offer to you if you're not a Christian. The offer to you from God in heaven right now is come to Jesus. Repent from your sins. Trust in the one who wasn't selfish, but looked out for your good. Trust in the one who sacrificed himself for your good, that you might be saved. And if you have questions about that, I'll be at the door at the end of this service. Um, There's members of this church. John Lee said, ask anyone. You could ask anyone, but if you ask another visitor, ask a member of the church. Ask someone who's, who's a member of this church, and they will... They'll tell you that they'll, they'll help you out or they'll, they'll point you to some other member who can help you. Okay, so Jesus is the ultimate illustration of what it means to think in unity, right? But what's the second command? And this is, there's a lot of theology here, but we're going to go over this in about 15 minutes, okay? Think like Jesus, verses 5 through 11. So we already got it. Well, can we know what Jesus did? How do we think like Jesus? There's a lot of theology and debate on this passage. Jesus, God became man. I'm going to touch on it just a little bit because the main point of the passage is that we would think like Jesus. That's the command in verse 5, right? Look at verse 5. What does verse 5 say? What's the command? Adopt the same what? Attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Now, that's a good translation. That's not the literal translation. It's think the same way as Jesus. It is the same. It's think. It's the same word as in verse uh, 2. So think like Jesus. Okay, how are we going to think like Jesus? I'm going to give you three practical ways to think like Jesus now. Okay, this is point number two, right? Think like Jesus. Point number one, think in unity. Now think like Jesus. Three practical ways to think like Jesus. Think, humble, and believe. Those are the three verbs. Think, humble, and believe. Think, humble, or humble yourself, and believe. What do I mean by think? Think like Jesus. How did Jesus think in verse 6? Who existing in the form of God, so Jesus is God. He did not consider equality. There's the thinking, the considering. He did not think equality with God as something to be exploited. So what is Jesus, how does Jesus think? He has, he has resources. He has an advantage. And does he exploit it? No. Did he say, well, I got mine, so I'm good. I'm going to not worry about other people as long as I got mine and I'm safe. No. He doesn't exploit his position, his rightful position. Not just by God's grace given to him. It's it's his by right, by divine right. He is God the Son. And yet, he doesn't exploit that position. He doesn't think in that way of, I'm just going to get mine. And so if you're going to think like Jesus, you need to stop thinking, I'm just going to get mine. As long as I'm okay, I'm okay. That's not the way Jesus thought. That's not the way you're supposed to think. Don't exploit your position. He's equal with God. He doesn't think that as something to be exploited. Instead, what does he do in verse 7? It's still part of the thinking. He emptied himself. So think to the point of emptying yourself. Emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. So how does he he think in a way that doesn't take advantage of his opportunity? Not just by a mindset, but he actually takes action. 
his thought transfers into himself, emptying himself and taking on the form of a servant. He becomes a what? A man. He becomes a human. So if you're going to think like Jesus, you need to, number one, or here in this thing, you need to think in a way that you're not exploiting your resources, but rather you're using your resources to take the form of a servant, to take the position of servant. That's how you think like Jesus, first of all. If you're going to get that mindset, okay? Not exploiting my opportunities and resources, but using them and leveraging them to take the position of servant. That's think. What's the second word? You guys remember? Think. What's the second one? Humble or humble yourself. What's the third one? Believe. Okay? Think, humble, believe. Let's go to the second one now. Humble. How does he humble himself now? Well, verse 7 continues. When he had come as a man, now verse 8, here's him humbling himself. He humbled himself. How? How? By becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Okay, so two things here about humbling yourself. He humbled himself to the point of what? Death. So humble yourself sacrificially. Humble yourself by by not having a limit on your humility. If you have a limit on your humility, that is by definition not humble. To, to have humility, Jesus-like humility, Christian humility, there has to be no limit to the humility. It has to go all the way to the point of death. Now, Christ's death saves us. Our death for each other doesn't save in that atoning sense, though it is used as an in, in an instrumental sense it can. But here, okay, so so think or humble yourself to the point of death like Jesus did. But there's something else here, and this one I want to focus on actually more. Look at verse thir- verse 8 again. He humbled himself by becoming what? Obedient. Let's camp here for a second. Humble yourself by becoming obedient. Obedient to who? Who is he obedient to? God the Father, right? He obeyed, he obeyed the will of the Father. Remember he was praying, uh, if there's any way, let this cup be passed from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. I want to obey your will, not just grudgingly, but gladly. So obedience is crucial. Obedience to God is necessary for humility. There is no true humility apart from obedience to God. You cannot be humble and disobey God at the same time. Now, you've got to be careful here because some people use humility as a reason to disobey God. Ah, I, I don't know everything. I can't really understand everything because I'm just, I'm just a human. All humans make mistakes. I'm being humble, so I can't really understand the Bible. No one can really understand the Bible. Let's all be humble. Whereas the Bible tells us to think over what I say, First Peter 2 or First Timothy or 2 Timothy 2, 7. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. No, no, but I'm humble because I can't understand everything. I can't understand it. You're using humility as an excuse to disobey the Bible. You're like, you can't understand it. Or some people say, you know, where does it say, if your brother sins against you, in Matthew 18, 15, go and tell him what? In private, his fault. Oh, but I'm too humble to tell him. Who am I to tell John Lee that he sinned? That's not humility, that's pride. So I'm going to humble myself and not tell John about the sin that I saw him commit. Because I'm being humble. That's pride. That's arrogance. To stand against the creator of the universe who tells you clearly what to do and you refuse to do it in the spirit of quasi-obedience is pride. Humility demands obedience. You can look humble and be arrogant. At the core of humility is obedience. And when you use, when you have excuses of why you can't obey what the scripture says, 
Guess what? You're arrogant. You're proud. You're Satan-like. Isn't that what Satan did? Isn't that what Adam and Eve did in the garden? When Adam's, what, what was it? What was Satan's temptation to, to Eve in the garden? In, if you eat this fruit, you will be like who? You'll be like God. You'll be equal to God. That's what arrogance does. You exalt yourself to God. Now, this is the irony of it. Jesus was equal to God. And what did he do? He emptied himself. You are not equal to God. And yet, what do we do? We grasp it as if we are. That is not humility. Humility is obedience to the actual words of the text. Not Bible slogans. The words of the text. This is God's words to us. And so we must obey it and not make excuses of why we can't do what the text says. It's what, it's what God has said, clearly. We can't think in unity as a church if we're making excuses of why we can't obey the Bible. It's impossible at that point. Because if we're not going to obey the Bible and obey God, why are we going to listen to each other? We're not. We're all going to fight for ourselves at that point. And so we must realize that obedience is part of humility. To disobey God is to destroy not only being on the same page with God, but to but it destroys you being on the same page with God's people who are on God's page. So if you disobey God, you're not on the same page as God. But then if the rest of the church is on the same page as God, as God and obeying God and you're not, guess what you're doing? You're separating yourself from the church. You're dividing the church by disobeying. There's two pitfalls in this unity talk in churches today. Mark Devereux said, corrupt unity, um, prefer correct division over corrupt unity. Something like that. Correct division over corrupt unity. So there's two pitfalls that churches can fall into. Corrupt unity. Let's be united. Let's unite. Let's unite. Let's unite. Well, what are we uniting over? Who cares what we're uniting over as long as we're united? Let's get on the same page. And if someone's not united, hey, you're not being in unity. Well, what are we uniting around? It doesn't matter as long as we're united. That's corrupt unity. If it's not centered on God, it's corrupt unity. That's one pitfall in the unity conversation. Let's be united for unity's sake. The other pitfall is selfish division. Well, no, we can't be united on that because that's wrong. So let's go over here to my selfish agenda. That's also a pitfall. So selfish division and corrupt unity are two errors in the unity conversation. So what's the solution? How does true humility solve this? How does obedience to God solve this? Here's how it solves it. Instead of corrupt unity, we need holy separation. So when you find groups having corrupt unity, you need to separate and divide from a corrupt unity. Because it's corrupt and it's sinful. And you'll share in the sin if you do not divide and separate yourself from it. So for corrupt division, the solution is holy separation. Obedience to God's word, which might mean separation. But there's the other side. What about for selfish division? What if someone is selfishly dividing from the church or dividing from people? Well, then we insist on the solution to that is unity in Jesus. Not just anyone's unity, but biblical unity. Christ-centered unity. And that both of those things, Christ-centered unity and holy separation, are two forms of obeying the Bible. So Jesus, if we're going to think like Jesus, we need to think. We need to humble ourselves in obedience. And lastly, we need to what? Third one? Believe. Thank you. Thank you, Betty. We need to believe. What do we need to believe? 
What do you mean believe? I don't see believe in this text. What did Jesus believe? Look at verses 9 through 11. Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, dying on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted himself and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. To the glory of God the Father. What did Jesus believe when he died? You can't, you can't think like Jesus unless you believe in future reward. What's the future reward here for Jesus? If I die on the cross, if I come down from heaven and become a man and die on the cross for sinners and rise from the dead, what is God going to do? Therefore, God what? Exalted him and gave him the name, that's the name Lord, over every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee in heaven, on earth and under the earth will um, confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and will bow down to him. Jesus believed in future reward. Christians are not masochists. We don't love suffering for suffering's sake. We don't like having a whip and just whipping ourselves on the back just to, just to feel holy. We will suffer, though. We will go through pain. Why? Because we believe in a future reward. We, let me just say it this way. Let me say it this way that might jar you. We believe that we will be exalted. You know why you need to humble yourself? You know why you need to think like Jesus and humble yourself and obey? Because God will exalt you. Does that sound weird? I can make it even weirder from Second Thessalonians. My devotion's there. It's not here in my notes, but um, God will glorify you. It says in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, I think. What does that mean? Well, James 4.10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will what? He'll lift you up. He'll exalt you. If you don't think that's biblical, what about First Peter 5.6? Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time that's even better i mean not better than james it's different but it's better for the point here and the point is this it's at the proper time you sacrifice now you humble yourself now you obey now you think in unity now you empty yourself now you take the position of a servant now and at the proper time god will exalt you in and with christ and there's no better reward than being exalted in and with christ forever and ever and ever on the new earth there is no greater reward you will not regret any second that you humbled yourself and served when you tasted that reward. And so therefore, you need to be like Jesus. For the joy set before him, it says in Hebrews 12, he ran the race of faith and sat down at the right hand of God. And now you, if you're going to have this mindset, the way you get power to humble yourself is by rem- remembering that Christ redeemed you and he redeemed you for a reward. I remember I was in chapel in one of my schools and the preacher preached and he stopped in verse 8. He said, humble yourself, humble yourself, humble yourself. And he stopped there. And I was like, I talked to him right after chapel. I was like, brother, you didn't finish the passage. The power to humble yourself is in the future reward. We live by what? Faith and not by sight. You live with a future orientation to the reward. That's what Jesus did. And that's what we need to do in our mindset as well. Brothers and sisters, do you know why we don't humble ourselves? This, This is the core of it. It's because we don't believe that the reward is better than what we would get if we don't humble ourselves. It's, a, it's an issue of faith. It's always an issue of faith. That's the reason why we don't humble ourselves is because we don't believe that God's reward is better than our calculated consequence of what we do. So we take our path, not his. But if you're going to take Jesus' mindset, if you're going to think like Jesus, you're going to believe that he will exalt you in his time when you obey his word and his way and not your initial thought of what you think the best way is. Now, this is a reference. This is a quotation of Isaiah 45, 23. 
where it says every knee will bow. It says, in, I'll, let me read to you Isaiah 45, 22 and 23. You'll hear Philippians 2 in it. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. So he's calling all, all the world to be saved. By myself I have sworn, truth has gone from my mouth, a word will not be revoked, every knee will bow to me, and every tongue will swear allegiance. Every knee will bow to Yahweh, to God. And here it's used for Jesus. So Jesus is Yahweh, Jesus is God. But more than that, this ties this text to the bigger story. Why are we humbling ourselves as a church? Because Isaiah 45 is reminding us that God said he was going to judge Israel and kick them out of the land. Because they disobeyed. And in the end, he would call them back. He would restore them. And then through Israel, he will extend salvation to the ends of the earth. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess whether they like it or not. So they might as well get saved. Now, why was Israel going to get kicked out of the land? Because they disobeyed God. Who else got kicked out of their land for disobeying God? Who got kicked out of their garden for eating the fruit? Adam, right? Adam was kicked out of the land. Israel was kicked out of the land. And God says, I'm going to save you. I'm going to bring you back to my land. And I'm going to call you to call all the nations to come to me. Because whether they come or not, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess. And so why do we need to think in unity? Because we're part of a big story, brothers and sisters. Our church here is just part of this big story of from Adam all the way to Christ returning. That God is restoring, he's calling people back to himself to be saved, to be called by churches who think in unity and think like Jesus. And in the end, in the end what's the ultimate goal? What's the, what's the end of all this? What did Jesus believe at the end of all this? Verse 11. Every time we'll confess Jesus Christ as Lord to what? To what? To the glory of God the Father. To the glory of God the Father. It's all about God's glory, right? It's all about glorifying God. Think in unity. Think like Jesus to glorify God. I have some questions here for you to reflect on just before I close. What are you tempted to divide our church over or disagree sharply with another church member over? Whether it's a church as a whole or individually. Is God's glory being trampled in the way you're interacting with other members of this church? Is it a sin is it sin you're trying to confront? Is that why there's division in the church? Or is it not a sin? Is it just your preference that's being violated? Is it because you want God to be central and that's why you're fighting in this church? That's a good reason to fight. Or is it because you want to be central? That's a bad reason to fight. Are you happy that God is in control and not you? Are you happy that he's in command and not you? Are you happy that he put these people in this church at this time and not other people? Are you thinking like Jesus? Emptying yourself like Jesus? Humbling yourself and obeying God like Jesus so that you'll be exalted like Jesus and glorify God the Father like Jesus? This is your invitation, brothers and sisters. This is your opportunity. This is your moment. This is what Jesus died and rose to enable us to do, to empower us to do, to think in unity and to think like Jesus. Why? so that we explain and embody Jesus to our neighbors and to our friends. If you fail to embrace this mindset, you will both you will be both selfishly divisive and you'll be promoting corrupt unity in our church. If you fail to think like Jesus and think in unity, you will attract the wrong people and isolate the people, the right people who are really following Jesus. 
If you fail to think in unity and think like Jesus, you will be humbled by God instead of exalted by God in the end. And you will not advance the gospel through this church. You will distract us from the gospel work. Now, if you embrace this mindset, God will be glorified. You will be exalted. Our church will experience Jesus through you, and the gospel will spread. Remember, in the beginning, I talked about us remembering sweet times in the church and how they get sour pretty quick once you have conflict. I want to encourage you with this. Church can not only be sweet again, it can be sweeter. And love can grow deeper as we work through issues together, thinking in unity and thinking like Jesus. Brothers and sisters, conflict in our church is not a reason to leave. It's a reason to go deeper together. So let us think in unity and let us think like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the impossible, at least for us humans, the impossible work that Jesus did to be God the Son and then to become a man while remaining God the Son, to die for our sins and to serve us and to obey you. Lord, without that, there is no life. There is no hope. There is no power. There is no unity. There is no love. There is no comfort. There is no church. There's no family. And yet, because you, Lord Jesus, did this, we experience your grace. Thank you for giving us a church family. Thank you for giving us each other. Thank you for giving us fellow Christians. Thank you for giving us neighbors. Thank you for giving us opportunities to think in unity and to think like Jesus. Thank you for forgiving us. And Lord, we we pray even now a fresh prayer of confession, a fresh prayer that you would forgive us for our selfishness. Forgive us for our arrogance. Forgive us for our disobedience. Forgive us for our excuse making. Forgive us for shaping relationships and the church around ourselves rather than around your son. Father, you're working in us. Keep working in us, please, for your glory, for our joy in you, and for our future exaltation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.